Okay. Samson. Who knows something about Samson? Anybody? Does anyone know what Samson was supposed to do in his life? Anybody? Yeah. Grow out his hair. Grow out his hair. Why? To dedicate it to God. Right, exactly. Samson was what we call a Nazarite, okay? So that basically was a fancy word for a person who was set apart for God. And not just a Nazarite, like you could choose to be a Nazarite. So a person can say, I'm going to abstain from alcohol like he did. Uh, I'm going to grow out my hair. Kind of weird, right? And the last thing is that you can't touch dead people. So out of those three requirements, this is kind of you showing that you are set apart for the Lord. And that's what Samson was supposed to do from birth. So even while he was in the womb, his parents were supposed to set him apart. Now, here's the problem. As many of you know, Samson didn't obey the things of God, even though he's raised up as a judge. In the midst of this book of Judges, as people are doing whatever's right in their own eyes, they're doing whatever they feel like doing, Samson was supposed to be a guy that was a godly man. Instead, he decided to do whatever he wanted. So, that being the case, we see time and time again, um, in chapter 14, later on, what we see is that he touches a dead body. Like, basically, he goes home, and a lion attacks him, and and the Bible says he tears apart the lion like he does a young goat. Like, that's a thing. It's like, you know, like, how you tear apart a young goat? This is how you tear tear apart, apart a lion. It's like a very strange analogy. But, basically... He touched the dead body of the lion, defiling himself, and then takes out a honeycomb and gives it to his parents. Like, hey, look, I found some honey. Like, didn't tell him. He just took it it out of the stomach of a lion. And so they eat of it. It's kind of a weird story. But time and time again, Samson fails to follow in the ways of the Lord. So, that being said, everyone look up here. How many of you grew up in Christian homes? Okay. How many of you would say that your, your, your Christian home parents want you to grow up in godly ways, right? Samson is in the midst of trying to figure out who he is. I think one of the the things about growing up in a Christian home is you want to figure out who you are, right? And it's hard to do that as your parents are telling you exactly what you're supposed to do. So naturally you have this distance of like, well, how can I trust my parents? Because they're not always right. Like sometimes I'm right and they're wrong, right? So you start having those arguments and Samson decided, well, you know what? What's so bad about, you know, going and getting away from the people of the Philistines who were the enemy of Israel? So, yeah, that's not really a problem. So he tells his parents, and his parents are like, really? Like, there's no one good at church? Like, don't you go to youth group? You can't choose one of those nice, like, girls from the youth group? Instead, he's like, nope, this one pleases me well, so you got to get her for me. You know, like, that's his command to his parents. Breaking time and time again his parents' heart. Okay, so he's trying to figure out who he is. And maybe you're in that stage right now too, where you're not really sure who you are. Your friends are asking you to do certain things that maybe your parents aren't okay with. And maybe your youth leaders aren't okay with, but you're, you're like, is that the most important thing? To do what my parents think is okay, because sometimes they're wrong, they don't know best. And you start thinking of survival as the fittest. If I'm going to roll with these groups of friends, then I should do what they tell me to do, right? So now we start making mistakes, and when you make a mistake, you're constantly faced with the question of, who do I want to be? Do I want to be this when I've made the mistake? But it really wasn't that bad. You know, like, at first it was kind of like bad, but it was not really that bad. Or do you want to roll with this group of, like, stiff, like, very solid Christian people that read the Bible for fun all day, right? Like, growing up, I never thought I'd be a pastor just because I, like, didn't like reading the Bible that much. I did it because I was supposed to, but I just, I don't know. Like, when I saw pastor friends that I knew, 
it seemed like all they did with all their time is just read the Bible. So then I was like, well, I'm not that, so I'll probably never be a pastor. But the difference was for me, when I started to look at the Bible as not reading any textbook, but I saw it as I'm actually getting to meet with the God of the universe, that's when everything changed. And I think that happens today, too. You know, like when we're, ta- we're talking about a story that's thousands of years old about this guy named Samson. But I think there's principles we can pick up today that actually, like, as you're reading it, maybe this is happening to you, maybe not. But, like, there are times that you'll read the Bible and you're like, I think God is speaking to me. You know, like, this verse is for me. And it's not just something, it's not a coincidence that I'm going through this in my life. And it just so happens I'm stumbling upon this verse that is exactly speaking to my situation. So that being the case, we know that Samson is looking for a wife amongst the people of the Philistines. And that was a big no-no, right? Here's a picture of Israel being complacent in their sin. All before this, um, this story, in the beginning of Judges, you have Israel constantly crying out to the Lord saying, Oh, we've sinned, and we're in bondage, we're enslaved by this evil people. And because of that, they're constantly... You know, crying out to the Lord and the Lord delivers them, raises up a judge. But here you have a case where people are fine. Like the Philistines are holding the people of Israel in bondage, but it's not really that it's not really a big deal anymore, right? This is what happens in our spiritual life, right? When we start to become complacent, we're no longer bothered by sin, we've numbed ourselves, and we're like, ah, I don't know, is it really that big of a deal? And sometimes what God has to do is sovereignly, He has to like be able to stir up the pot. He has to be able to take what's happening in your life and stir things up so you recognize that you are a slave of sin. You are in bondage, and it only leads to destruction. And this is what happens, unfortunately, with this guy named Samson. Let me ask you a question, though. What's really bad? We all know that verse in the Bible, right, that says, do not be unequally yoked. And when I was growing up, I thought that was talking about an egg. So I never knew what that was talking about. Just like, unequally yoked, you like crack open the egg and you look at the yolk. But when it's talking about that, it's talking, obviously, about having two different oxen or whatever. You have this yoke of of wood that's on your shoulders, and you're carrying a load behind you. So to be unequally yoked means that you you take an ox and then, like, a rabbit, right? So something that's a completely different animal, and you're still pulling a load. If you do that, what's the problem? What's the problem if you have an ox and a rabbit, and you have a wooden beam, and you're carrying a load? What's the problem with that? What's that? Well, it might move, right? What's that? Oh, a lot slower. A lot slower? Yeah, one person's carrying all the weight. Right? The rabbit's not even going to touch the ground. It's going to be floating. And that's what it means to be unequally yoked. You're taking all of the burden of this life upon yourself. The burden of the spiritual life. So... You still got to think about it, though. Like, what, what's really wrong about, like, a believer and an unbeliever being in a relationship? What would you think? What would you have to say if you have to guess? Yeah. Different boundaries. Different boundaries, different morals. What you got? Oh, your lives are just both going in different directions. Thank you. That is amazing. That was great. That was really wise. So... Here's the thing. I heard a pastor say, so listen, like, if you're in an unequally yoked relationship, I'm not like, I don't know, so this might be you. All I'm saying is, a pastor once said um, on the radio or something, I listened to a program where he said, being in an unequally yoked relationship 
is lacking in intimacy in anything that really matters in life. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. So a friend of mine, I hang out with unbelievers all the time just because I want to be like around real people. Not to say Christians are fake people, but you know what I'm saying? Like you want to live in the world. You want to be able to like look at people in the eye and be like, what do you actually believe? So you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. Why? Why don't you believe in God? Like, have you been outside? Like, look at the stars. It's hard to do it right now. But like, like, I don't see how you live life without believing that God exists. Like, life would not make sense. Okay. So I want to be around those kinds of people. And one of my friends was asking me, he's like, so in your religion, are you not allowed to like be in a relationship with someone outside of your religion? And what I said to him was this. Well, for me, it's not really like you're not allowed, but how could I be in an intimate relationship with someone who believes that the most important thing in my life is a joke. So if I really say that the number one thing about me is I'm a believer in Jesus, like his life is the only thing that matters, like I'm synonymous with his life and I love him and he's the first thing in my life, how can I be joined to somebody else and they believe that that's all a lie? Imagine making decisions in your life. Imagine God speaks to you and says, you know what, I want you to be a missionary. I want you to go over to, to, I don't know, the Dominican Republic, and I want you to be a missionary there. And he, like, speaks to you very clearly. How do you do that if you're in an unequally relationship, right? Like, so this is what happened. Like, God spoke to me. And like, okay, that's interesting. And we need to move our entire family overseas. Like, you're crazy. Why don't you just be honest and say that you want to do it? We don't believe in God. Like, how would you be, be able to make any important decisions in life? So, but... Yeah, I'll say that in a second. So here's the thing. When we compromise in little things, I really believe it's because we don't actually believe we have a calling in life. That's where I'm getting at. And if I'm honest, a lot of the stupid things I've done in my life were really because I didn't think God was going to use me. If I knew God was going to call me to be a pastor, of course, I like, I'd probably read the Bible a lot more, study theology books, or like be prepared or something. But I didn't believe that. And so I wasted so many years of my life just searching for who I am, trying to figure out my life. But the more you look inward, the more depressed you are because there's nothing there. But the more you look to God, he's the one who created you to be who you are. So here's the thing. A lot of people are trying to figure out themselves, right? But here's the problem. We change every day, right? Think about the very first person you've ever liked. Think about that person in your mind's eye. Now imagine being married to that person for the rest of your life. Right? Yeah. But when we first liked it, we were so convinced this is the one. And maybe that is for like one person here. The majority of us, it's like the very first person you like, it would be a nightmare to be married to them. No offense to anybody here. But the point being that our identity seems like it's always in flux, right? I'm not the same person physically that I was when I was little. I'm not the same person mentally, emotionally, any of that is different. So, what makes me me? Well, Moses asked that question when he went up to God on uh, the burning bush. Remember that conversation? God's like, I'm sending you to go deliver the people of Israel. He tried that once. He tried killing an Egyptian, and then all the people hated him. So he left, and he's discouraged. And then God says, I want you to go. And he says, well, who am I? And how does God respond? Moses, you got this. I believe in you. He didn't say any of that. He said... He said to Moses, I am who I am. Because it's only when you seek your identity in God that you know who you are. That being the case, come on in. So that being the case, a lot of people, I think, 
because they're not willing to seek their identity in God, they live their entire lives being somebody else. So imagine like, when you think of any tool, you think of like any object that's made for something, like think of a hammer. A hammer is made to do things, right? So if somebody crafts a hammer, it's so that you can pull out nails, you're able to hammer some nails into the wall. But I think it'd be pretty obvious that if you took a hammer, you're like an aborigine, you've never seen it before, and you start using it as a toothpick, you're misusing it, right? You might be able to get the job done, but probably it wasn't used for its intended purpose. And if God actually created you, then he created you for a purpose. And if he created you for a purpose, then only God knows why you were made. And if you ask anybody else why you're here, you're going to be confused. So that's what I'm saying. So, that being the case, Moses sought his identity in Christ, and Samson did not. And instead, he was kind of just obeying whatever he wanted to do. His own passions, his own desires. But now let's, let's go over to chapter 16, flip over a page. And we're going to start looking at the ways that he compromised. Okay, so chapter 16, verse 4. It says, Afterward it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So now, after this whole fiasco of like trying to find this woman, and then eventually um, she finds out the answer to this riddle, he gets ticked off, and then he like leaves her, and then her dad basically like, oh, I don't think he likes you anymore. So then he gave her in marriage to his best man, Samson's best man at the wedding. And then when Samson comes back, he's like, so where's my fiance? And he's like, well... I thought you hated her, so I gave her to be your best man's wife. But her younger sister, she's pretty good looking. So like that's actually what he says. And Samson's just like ticked off. So then he finds another woman named Delilah. And the thing about Delilah was that she was a secret agent, right? She was the person, and you guys know this, but she was she looked like on the outside, like she wanted to love Samson, appreciate Samson, but inwardly, she was trying to entice him. And this is the danger about sin, and this is the danger about lust, okay? And you guys probably heard this before, but lust is what can I get out of someone, whereas love is how can I give to somebody else? And so many of us will compromise being in a getting situation, a getting relationship, because that's all that we know. We've never really been loved before. I think... And you tell me if I'm wrong. A lot of times, people jump into relationships very quickly, especially when they're teenagers, because they don't actually know what it's like to be loved. They've never experienced that before. They don't have a loving community. And so they they figure by having one person that knows all of them and accepts them for who they are, that's the only way that they're able to really figure out who they are in the first place. So... This is what Samson does. He loves a woman. This was his weakness. And we find out that he's being enticed. So now, look at verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If, you, if they buy me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dry, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. 
This is where we got to be careful that we don't um, we don't become ignorant of the enemy's schemes. Because the Bible says that the enemy, Satan, is roaring like a lion, like a lion, and he's seeking whom he can devour. He's always looking to take people down. And if you think about what lions do, lions will take down gazelles when they're not looking. They'll never catch them on the run. But when you're not looking, when you least expect it, that's when lust likes to creep in when you're at your weakest moments. And so that's where we got to be careful as Christians because Samuel always calls you to compromise, whereas God, once again, wants, to, wants you to reach that higher calling. So, that being the case, I think it's interesting, right? Because Delilah is talking to Samson and saying, tell me where your great strength lies. Like, why would he tell her? Like, tell me the secret to your strength. And we know it's what? His hair. He is compromising other areas. He touched a dead body, you know, and he was, um, he was doing all kinds of different things. But here, he still had his long hair. And he says, well, if you tie me with a lot of different strings and stuff, then I'll become weak unlike any other man. So he lies to her. You know what? I would say be careful when you're in a relationship of telling each other too much too fast. A lot of times you feel like, Oh, this person knows me. They love me. And so that you feel like, well, if you love me, you're going to tell me your deepest, deepest, darkest secrets. And in the first week of you dating, you're already telling each other like everything. That's dangerous. Okay. And here's why. Because you don't know if this person is trustworthy. That takes time. That takes commitment. And that takes relationship. So when people quickly invest emotionally, physically, and mentally in a relationship, that could be a warning sign that it's headed in a bad direction. So, this is what's happening to Samson, and he's quickly digressing until he compromises. Look at verse 9. Or verse 8. So the lords of the Philistines brought up, brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound with him. Uh, bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now, please tell me what you may be bound with. So he said to her, If they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and become like any other man. Therefore Delilah took up new ropes and bound him with them. And said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in a room. But he broke them off with his, uh, broke them off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from sleep and pulled, up, pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. So basically he's like, all right, well, if you give me a nice hairdo, it's going to... It's going to take out all my strength. He just keeps on lying to her, and she finally gets fed up and says in verse 15, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? Like, how many of you know what that's like? Like, you don't spend time with me. You don't go out to the movies with me anymore. You have mocked me these three times and not told me the, where your great strength lies. And it came to pass that she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. That he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and become like any other man. So here, he finally tells the secret of his strength. 
And this is where Samson, I think he compromises for a number of reasons because he's letting himself be dictated by his passions and desires and not by the Lord. He doesn't have that solid relationship with the Lord. And he's giving in to the attacks of the enemy because he doesn't have a great defense, right? I mean, that's pretty easy to see. But why don't you flip over to Genesis chapter 25? I want to show you something. Flipping your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Or smartphones. Or you don't have to. And I'll do it. So, there's a story of Jacob and Esau. You guys may know the story. This is when Jacob was stealing his birthright. It says in verse 29 of Genesis chapter 25, Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with the same red stew for I am weary. Therefore, his name is called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Maybe you guys know that story, but his birthright was the thing that would allow him to inherit the rights of the firstborn. So he'd get all the inheritance after his dad died. And Esau, for a bowl of stew, just gave it up. And because he did, he started being called Edom, which means red, for the red stew. And your sin defines you when you give into it, believe it or not. And this is what happened to Esau. He was known for his sin, for his compromise. Why did Esau compromise? Why in the world did Samson compromise? And why will you and I compromise in moments of weakness? I think it's this. People will sell themselves cheap when they don't believe the things of God are worth waiting for. You and I know it's true. In that moment of weakness, you say to yourself like, well, I probably will be single for the rest of my life. I might as well go out with this person. Well, if I don't give in now, I might not have another opportunity. Well, I don't actually believe that God has a person set aside for me one day. And we give in to lust in the moment because it's still about what we get and not what we give. Listen very carefully. Everyone look up here. Jesus demonstrated what true love is. In that he gave himself for us and didn't require anything from us. Jesus actually died for sinners that might not ever accept him. And so when we show love to other people, if you're requiring things from people, this is what you're doing. What you're basically saying is, I will only love you if you give me what I want. Anyone watch Beauty and the Beast? Anybody? Don't be ashamed. The new one. Don't be ashamed if you watch it. Okay. If you're a guy and you watch it. Here's the thing. So... Like it was really only three people? If it's only three people, I won't use the illustration. Okay. If you've watched Beauty and the Beast, raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. Okay, I'm using the illustration. So, the new one. So, I know a lot of people like hit the, mu- the movie, they're like, Disney's evil, whatever. But this is what I was thinking about it. In the world, what people say today is you have to love yourself, you have to believe in yourself, and that's what will really make you happy. In the movie of Beauty and the Beast, that love is depicted and that person guessed on. The person who loves himself, is all about himself, wants people to look at him, that's guessed on and we hate that, right? We're, we're like disgusted by that. And then true self-sacrificial love exists in the Beast when he tells Belle to go rescue her dad. 
And he knows that by sending her away, that he will probably be cursed forever. So even though he know that he, he knows he'll be cursed forever, he sends her away. And when you watch that, you're like, that's what I want. I think even a secular person watches that, it's like, that's the kind of love that I want to receive. And Jesus really gives that love to us. And we have the, the ability to give that message to other people. But first, we have to first experience it ourselves. So, a lot of people compromise because they don't believe the things of God are worth waiting for. And they don't actually believe that God has a calling on their life. Now flip over. Just hold on a second. If you don't like flipping, that's fine. I'll read it to you. Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, so, if you want to know the pathway to escape sin temptation and lust it's found in this verse in hebrews i don't think a lot of people point this out so that's why i'm pointing out to you you get to know the secrets of the bible ready hebrews chapter 11 verse 23 says by faith moses when he was born was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and and they were not afraid of the king's command by faith moses when he became of age refused to be called the son of pharaoh's daughter instead he says this Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Here's how you can escape sin. If you are dying to yourself, if you're sacrificing yourself for others, it's impossible to indulge in sin at the same time. You can't indulge in lust and be giving yourself to somebody else at the same time. Here's what Moses did. Apparently, according to historians, they believe that Moses could have been the next Pharaoh if he just waited long enough. So he had the heart. Acts chapter 7 tells us that Moses saw the affliction of the people of Israel. He related to that and he wanted to deliver them. And so he figured, like, if I kill this guy, the the Egyptian dude, then all the people see me as the natural leader. And it didn't happen. So if Moses wanted to, he could have just waited out and then he could have made the, the load lighter for the people of Israel. Been a great Pharaoh. But he said, it's better to forsake the riches of Egypt and to suffer with Christ. There's greater joy in the sufferings of Christ. Now, you and I may not know that if we've never suffered before in the name of Jesus. But why would we do that? That sounds terrible. Like suffering for Christ, that sounds like a terrible thing. When you truly experience his love, gratitude is the most powerful motivator. Because when you're grateful, there's no amount of gratitude you can repay to God that will ever be enough. So here's the thing. When we're listening to a love song, especially a love song that one of you guys have written, and it's about somebody else, most of us get weirded out, right? Especially when they're like, you are my everything. I would die for you, right? You listen to that song, you're just like, oh, that's weird, right? Why are we weirded out by that? Because we feel like we're exaggerating when we're talking about somebody else, right? So you say that and you're just like, I don't really think they're worth your life. But here's the thing. When we sing worship songs, we should actually be the most passionate worshipers because you'll never, with your words, be able to exaggerate about God. The only problem is when we sing worship songs about God, we're like, okay, it's time to write a worship song. God, you are great. We are going to heaven. Amen. Like we are like the least creative people because have we really truly experienced what the love of Christ is like? When you have, you realize that there's no way that we could ever repay his love. And that gratitude drives you away. Like, how in the world could I ever compromise with things that are so lowly and fleeting and temporary when God has eternal rewards for me in heaven? And he demonstrated that by dying on the cross. So, let's continue on and see what what else happens. 
So, uh, after the bad loom, she said, how can I love you when your heart is not with me? We'll read verse uh, 16. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him that his soul was vexed to death. He told her all his heart and said to her, no razor has ever come upon me. We read that. Verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lullied him to sleep on her knees, called for a man, and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shall shake myself free. But here's the key verse. Everyone pay attention. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That, I think, would be like the saddest thing if you didn't even recognize that the Holy Spirit had left you. His power had left you. And here's the thing. How many of us persist in our sin because we don't see God striking us with lightning? Like God hasn't put an end to it. So it's like, oh, God must approve. It's really not that big of a deal. Forgetting the fact that God is long-suffering and his mercy towards us is good. And he's giving us plenty of time to repent. But wouldn't it be the worst thing to just assume that God is still with us one day, but because we regard sin in our heart, the Lord is not going to hear us. That we just assume that God is okay with our addictions or whatever it is that we're doing. And because of that, he's just going to hear our prayers. Now, I don't think that's good motivation for you, though. Like me just telling you, like, watch out, God might leave you. I don't think that's good motivation. Here's what I think is good motivation for you to escape sin. My youth pastor told me once, anytime God says no to something, it's because he's already said yes to something else. Okay? So why does, it, why does God say no to sex outside of marriage? It's because he said yes to sex inside of marriage. Why does he say no to abortion? It's because he said yes to life. Why does he say no to divorce? Because he says yes to marriage. Anytime God says no to something, it's for greater joy. So think about this. If the entire world just obeyed this this one commandment, do not commit adultery. Think about this. There would be um, no divorce. There would be a drastically reduced number of abortions. There would be no STDs in the entire world. And you have to ask yourself, a world without STDs, drastically reduced abortions, and no divorce, is that world better or worse than the one we live in right now? better even a secular person agrees with that right you don't have to agree with me i know you're doing it silently in your heart i think even the secular person agrees with that and i know because i talk to them but how many of us still compromise because we don't see the riches that are in jesus and i can tell you for a fact like i would never give up what i'm doing right now for the fleeting pleasures of sin but i know that i could be prone to temptation at any moment at any moment, I can ruin my life. All I have to do is just drive to the strip club, and I just ruin my testimony, ruin my life, and then that's it, right? It's pretty easy to do that. But I would never do that. And here's why. Because I have a relationship with Jesus. And so knowing the, prone, uh, the proneness of our hearts to wander, we always have to keep up those safeguards. And for me, I know when I'm most challenged is when I forget my calling. When I forget that God has a call in my life. He has a hope and a peace and a, a future for me. And I hope for you as well that you don't compromise because you forgot that God has called you his child. So you know, the Bible says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. If you want to be a friend of the world, you're actually an enemy of God. That's a scary thing, right? 
So usually at this point of the conversation, you start saying, well, what can I do? What am I allowed to do? How far is too far? Like in a relationship, what am I allowed to get away with? And I would say you're asking the wrong question because if you're married, you would never go up to your spouse and say, so how much can I get away with? That's not technically cheating. Like how much cheating can I do so that you wouldn't leave me? Nobody would say that, right? Why? Because when you're in love, you go above and beyond what's asked of you. There's a pastor who has an illustration. His name's Tim, Tim Keller. Not like that's important, but he said, imagine you're like forced to study Mozart for school. And some of you guys are like assigned homework. Like whenever you're told to do things at school, you always do the bare minimum, right? Like you wait till the last minute to hand in your project. When you're doing a group project and a presentation, you're just praying, Lord, please don't let me get picked because you like planned like chances are I'm probably not going to go next week so I'll just wait till the very last minute you know you do the bare minimum but let's say that while you're assigned to study Mozart you listen to his music and you actually love Mozart now you're like listening to everything he's ever written you're starting to practice piano all because you're in love and when you're in love you go above and beyond what's asked of you so you never ask the question like am I allowed to get away with this it's like I don't even care about that I want to do what's well pleasing to the Lord And when you live that kind of life, that is the full and the abundant life. Whereas Satan, his entire scheme is to get you to believe that the things of this world are actually satisfying. I I hear a lot of people talk about like living for the moment, you know? Like a lot of people just want to do it for the experience or to feel high or to feel like loved. But here's the thing. Living for the moment, I believe, really just means that you don't believe that there's any particular moment worth living for. Because when you live in the moment, live for the moment, what you're basically doing is you're saying, there is no future. There's nothing awaiting me that's going to be worth waiting for. So when you're um, an athlete, you're training, right? So like if you're going to run a marathon, you say, I love donuts, but I'm not going to eat donuts now because I know that there's a race I want to win. And I want to win really, really badly. I'm going to be on a diet. You're going to be training. You're going to be stressing yourself out all because you think it's worth it to get that gold, gold medal. And it's the same thing in your Christian walk. You're willing to push off those other things because you say, you know what? I believe that God has a calling in my life and I believe that his rewards are worth it. So I don't know what it looks like. I've never been to heaven. I'm not going to get to heaven or I'm not going to be able to like visualize heaven right now. And God's like, hey, these are the rewards I was talking about, you know. But I do know that even if I can't see the rewards in heaven right now, I know that there's benefits here on earth too. The eternal life doesn't mean mean um, days added to your life it means life added to your days that every moment that you live could be filled with the Holy Spirit and you see it completely differently and the other thing too and I'll kind of end with this the other thing too is the life that Santa's living is depleting it's depressing it's not fun at all the life of giving this is where Jesus said it's better to give than to receive it's true because it is the most burdensome thing to always have to be in a relationship, to always have people loving you, giving you that affection, to be worth something. Because that means that when people aren't texting you every five seconds, when people aren't calling you, when people aren't doing things for you, that you feel like you're a nobody. You feel like you're not valued. But when your value comes from Christ, suddenly you don't need anybody to call you, you don't need anybody to text you, you don't need anyone to ask you out. You can just give to other people because you know that Jesus has done so much for you. It's just like, I know I'm valuable. I know that the Lord loves me. And I know that every piece in God's economy matters in the puzzle. So, 
All that to say, if we're talking about lust, we're talking about desires, I think we can all look at Samson as an example and remember like this is an actual story that happened in, in real time, in real life. And for us, this still happens today. Many of us might live a life where we believe that um, in following the things that make us feel good, we're going to be fulfilled, but it's all just lies. This is the way of the world. So, that being the case, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, that though the enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, Lord, that you have the, the words of eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to follow after you with all of our heart, that we turn away from the things that displease you. And we thank you, Lord, that um, you demonstrated what true love looks like on the cross. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.